0: Hey everybody. This is David, a.k.a. Macintosh.
1: And I'm Diana, a.k.a. Maude. Thanks for coming back after our little hiatus, everybody.
0: We needed a break because we are starting our new series this week.
1: With documentaries. Ooh. Yeah, this one's going to be a little different because documentaries are different types of films. There's no writers, quote-unquote. Uh, the cast is made up of real people, typically. a little different. So, in order to do this... We're going to start by recording a section before we watch the film.
0: Yeah, that's right. We haven't watched it yet. First up this week is 1988's true crime classic, Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line. Okay. A film that argues that a man was wrongly convicted for murder by a corrupt justice system in Dallas County, Texas.
1: Oh, so it's a local story.
0: It is a local story.
1: I didn't know that
0: done by a world-renowned director okay what do you know about this movie
1: i know it takes place in dallas now uh so i was alive when this was occurring so that's another thing that's what i know i don't know anything
0: you have no context for the documentary
1: no none whatsoever none i can say you've said uh this is a this is a good movie (laughs) that's that's about all i got i mean i could say
0: number one i had heard about this movie for a really long time i was a fan of errol morris's first documentary gates of heaven okay which is very weird and bizarre but super interesting
1: okay
0: and then knew his name from different documentary things when i had heard about this movie (laughs) and then one day i was sick with a stomach bug And I was in bed all day, so this was one of the like four movies that day I decided to turn on and watch.
1: Oh, so you watched this recently?
0: It was a couple of years ago, yeah. Yeah, it's not about recently, okay. And it's kind of amazing.
1: Okay, so if it sucks, I'm blaming you.
0: (laughs) If it sucks, the only thing I think you can argue is that it sucks for specific people because of its style.
1: All right, well, we're going to go watch it, and then we'll come back and talk about it.
0: And we are back from watching the movie. We
1: just finished it.
0: All right, so I'm going to need some initial thoughts from you.
1: It does remind me a lot of other documentaries we've watched, in particular, The Jinx. Just uh, with some of the style, the recording at the end felt very much like that. I know. It's
0: the Ur er- documentary. It's the original. This no. is the first one. There there are some people who cite this as the first use of reenactments for crime drama.
1: Oh I, I I get that. The reenactments are horribly used. I get what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, okay, this is this person's take on this story. So they show us that. And then we get new information and then we redo the scene. It just wasn't strung together cleanly so it's just like uh whatever uh this technique has been used over and over and over again. it's gotten better yes and i i understand this is the first time but in this first time i found it very the bonus
0: i think it can be boring if you're looking at it the first time what i find compelling about it is that there is almost a flat affect to everybody in the reenactment that's not something you get now. The reenactment is fully fleshed out and acted. It'd be very interesting to go watch Wormwood, which is mm-hmm. on Netflix, which Errol Morris also directed those three, and to watch Peter Sarsgaard, a true like well-known actor, yeah. go in there and fully flesh that out. But I kind of find it interesting that they are not representative of you know human lives. They're representative mm-hmm. of... Body placement here, body placement here. Car here. Now reverse this. Okay, it's a different car. Okay, it's somebody else in the driver's seat, hmm. and it's meant almost to mimic the police drawings. It's it's detaching in a I, sort of no,
1: way. No, I I get that. That no, that's t- okay. that
0: draws me in with it.
1: Hmm.
0: Unlike you know what I think a normal reenactment can do, which if it's really well done is great, but if it's piss poor, it just makes you laugh. But I do think there's a repetition to it that can be pretty boring if you've already seen this a thousand times. What else?
1: Um, I like the story. I do. It's interesting. Um, It's also sad because it seems like every, every person who touched this case fucked it up. In so many ways. Yeah, and that's what's so frustrating because I, I totally understand the urgency from the police station. like, a cop died. This is like, no. So we ha- we're going to get the guy who killed the fucking cop. Like I get that that urgency that like that's one of us. I totally understand that. I, but it, it this is where that that becomes a bloodlust.
0: Well, like, we don't
1: give a fuck who it is at this point but someone's going to pay.
0: If you want to get really sad about it, this is a very early movie that began to illustrate a huge issue and one that continues to this day mm-hmm. that there are tons of convictions. That are wrong. that are completely wrong,
1: absolutely based
0: on forced confessions, based uh, on abuses bullshit of the police force. It's really interesting. So yeah. I am reading "I'll Be Gone in the Dark," which is Michelle McNamara's book mm-hmm. about the Golden State Killer. What's fascinating about that is you have a bunch of cops who really are trying to do good work, yes, and do fuck up and talk about fucking up, but it's in service of actually trying to find this people, guy. And
1: absolutely, people make mistakes. This other- don't get connected sometimes; it just happens.
0: The travesty with this case is that it's not just that bloodlust, it's the arrogance of everyone involved. The detectives know that they've got a guy, the judge Mm -hmm. wants the death penalty because he's tough on crime, the DA has never lost a case, every single person is better than this dude, Mm -hmm. and- For me, one of the biggest things politically that has to be recognized is the way you stop this is that you have to have DAs who are interested in justice Mm -hmm. and not punishment. Correct. And that's why there's lots of movements now for DAs to release low-level criminals Mm -hmm. and drive out caseloads, partially because it's just too much fucking work to do.
1: Well, and also we live in a state... This crime happened to take place. Uh, where we have an express lane for the death penalty, we we like it and we use it, and we need to get rid of it.
0: And if there is a first movie to ever set you down the path for thinking you should probably get rid of the death penalty, this is a good place to start.
1: It was, and oh, I can't. There, there's a quote that one of the gentlemen gives that really recontextualized that in my mind.
0: Is it was it Randall Adams when he's talking about the prosecutors there? Yes.
1: He's like when they're talking about sentencing you, they're not talking about how they're sentencing. They're talking about how they're gonna kill you. Exactly. And I was just like, Wow, that is that's what serial killers do. That's what murderers do. They tell their victim this is how I'm gonna murder you.
0: And that's what the death penalty ultimately and, revolves around. Well that, that I don't is... want to get
1: I wanna get rid of the death penalty. However, at the time that this occurred we still executed people with the electric chair which is far more barbaric than lethal injection
0: and and, and that that's a debate to be had <laughs> I, in different forum and different things and <laughs> we may have different opinions on different that altogether but uh, if you are ever going yeah. to make a case against it you start that's, with a story like this that's
1: the that yeah that comment for for the person who could be innocent i was like yeah that's nuts that's ridiculous and then you have the statement from the attorney who was trying to fight for him who said you know i think that da thought this was his best conviction because he had the hardest guy to convict because he was innocent
0: as appellate attorney
1: yeah the appellate yeah that it was it takes
0: it takes a good prosecutor to convict it
1: it's it's easy to convict a guilty a guy. A guilty guy.
0: It takes an amazing prosecutor to convict an innocent, yeah. innocent man.
1: Yeah, and I was like, ooh, that's where it's with our our whole judicial process is kind of fucked up. Yep. That It does good work, too. <laughs> I, this, I don't want to shit on amazing policemen. I don't want to shit on amazing uh, DAs and all that.
0: This movie uh, is a very chewy, chewy piece yeah. of filmmaking.
1: Because this type of shit still happens.
0: Oh, all the time.
1: Yeah, it just looks different.
0: Sometimes it looks exactly the same. Oh I I agree. And it's done for even worse reasons. Oh than
1: I this. know. I know.
0: So, I mean, we've already sort of bled into what did you learn from this movie?
1: I learned that I don't like the death penalty. That yeah. you've
0: got some serious issues with it.
1: I always did, but that's that statement recontextualizes it in my brain in a way that I can't ignore. I can't, I can't justify that away.
0: I have, I've really begun to come around to that and understanding that there are so many injustices in the justice system and the death penalty is such a huge signifier of those.
1: And it's so final. And particularly in our state, uh, where people are so proud of it. Like, we're going to murder the murderers. That's fucked up.
0: Exactly. I, I've really come around to the fact of the only way forward is to move towards a system of justice in which people are detained
2: mm-hmm. based
0: on the risk they pose to society correct and once they have demonstrated that that risk is no longer there and particularly heinous crimes yeah. put you away for life yeah but
1: i mean you
0: sh- you are never allowed to take the life of another person no matter how heinous the crime and that is hard to say it
1: is it is because i want to murder all the people who hurt children <laughs> like please, i understand please you can go to the express lane yeah no i get but it's, the it's, the abuse of, but the abusive power
0: I it breeds becomes such a hot topic so no i agree i understand so what do you want to know more about
1: i want to know more about randall adams
0: okay well i've got that information okay for well you. the
1: end of the movie said he was serving a life sentence
0: correct okay so you you saw that there they mention this in the movie, but in case it's it gets a little convoluted in the mm-hmm. middle, and I, I know if you zone out a little bit because of the reenactments, he was scheduled to be executed in May of 1979. The case was kicked up to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and they talk about, this is, it's the most inane discussion. Like, you looked at me and was like, wait, why are you laughing at this? It was like, the judge is literally saying that the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals and the Supreme Court, in the aggregate, ruled 10-8 in his favor. I'm like, the Supreme Court smacked you down one to eight you fucking moron yeah it doesn't matter what the court of criminal appeals said at that point
1: yeah it was one of those when i was hearing it i was like this sounds so absurd and you're laughing hysterically and i was like did i miss something that's that funny and i i had gotten the point i just didn't find it funny
0: (laughs) well it's it's funny because of how absurd it is i mean you your your gut reaction to horror will come out from this movie yeah because for me, mm-hmm. when it gets that insane, I just start laughing yeah. because there's just no way around it.
1: No, I, when I when I replay what he said in my mind now, it, it is funny how stupid he sounds. But, exactly. You know, still trying to process stupidity.
0: What actually happened in that Supreme Court case was that there was a requirement mm-hmm. that Texas jurors had to swear that the mandatory imposition of a death penalty would not interfere with their consideration of factual matters in the case.
1: Uh, okay, yeah, no, that's a good reading of the law.
0: The Supreme Court said, fuck no, that's unconstitutional, and smacked it down. Yeah, Because if you're gonna have- if you're gonna have a death penalty, Mm -hmm. which I'm 100% convinced is cruel and unusual Mm -hmm. under the Constitution, but if you're gonna have it, you can't tell people that you have to base your facts entirely on what's there, and then the death penalty can't sway you on that. No. No. If you're gonna put a person to death- There's a different type of burden that gets placed. Oh,
1: absolutely. That's what our
0: system of law is built on. Yeah,
1: no, that's. So
0: that's what got it kicked back. Okay,
1: that's the correct decision.
0: And then that's what the appellate lawyer was saying. They were geared up for retrial. Henry Wade, Mm -hmm. the new Dallas County District Attorney, said, "We're not letting a cop killer, you know, run away with this. We're going to go after."
1: He converted it.
0: And then he petitions the governor to commute a sentence to life. Once the sentence is commuted no retrial. Yep. Mood issue. So we never got a chance.
1: That sounds so weird to say like, well your your death penalty conviction was commuted to life in prison. It's just
0: so weird. Well, you murdered you murdered a cop, but you get away with so it. So we're not going go to kill the you, but you got
1: to live in prison forever. Exactly. That's just weird.
0: <laughs> well, Randall Adams did eventually make it out. Okay. In May of 1988, David Harris testified. Mm-hmm. And he had recanted testimony during the trials, okay. during his habeas hearing. Mm-hmm. But in May 1988, he eventually did testify that Randall Adams was not in the vehicle. This movie was subsequently released in August of 1988, further publicizing the case. Oh. Randall Adams got back to the Court of Appeals,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and the Court of Appeals demanded a retrial Because Mulder, the district attorney at the time, who Mm -hmm. they talk about through the whole case with the perfect record, Mm -hmm. had clearly been coaching witnesses, specifically Emily. Yeah. And he...
1: The woman who fingered him.
0: He hid all that information Mm -hmm. that would impeach their testimony. And then later on, when they said, well, why did you keep this from us? He said, well, I can't find the witnesses anymore. They said his entire conviction was built on Mulder's interference in the case, Mm -hmm. and therefore, no, we're sending it back. They gave it back to Dallas County. Dallas County said, we refuse to prosecute. We're dropping the charges. Because of that, Mm -hmm. at the time, Mm -hmm. if you were pardoned for a wrongful conviction, you were paid $25,000. Oh, they
1: they didn't want to pay him.
0: He was not pardoned. Mm -hmm. He was released by Dallas County. So they
2: didn't have to pay him.
0: He never earned a dime after being imprisoned for 12 years today he would have received $80,000 for each year he served at least that's according at the time of the wikipedia article okay. and that may be even more at this point
1: is he still alive
0: he died i think i remember like 2010 or 2011 at okay. 61 but he died of like cancer he okay. was released he became an anti death penalty advocate oh. and he gave this great quote the man you see before you is here by the grace of god the fact that it took 12 and a half years and a movie to prove my innocence should scare the hell out of everyone in this room and if it doesn't then that scares the hell out of me that's fair david harris Mm -hmm. was executed in 2004 by lethal injection Mm -hmm. for the 1985 murder that they talk about in the movie
1: for that cop
0: no for the guy he, oh, the guy he kills he, he, yeah. in Beaumont or whatever. So, Errol Morris was supposed to interview David Harris that weekend when the murder occurred. That's David Harris is quoted as saying, I often say it's my favorite excuse for missing an appointment. I'm sorry I was off killing someone that dude is a stone-cold fucking sociopath and how nobody sees that uh-huh. is no, from insane the beginning. from
1: the beginning like that's what's extra crazy is that you caused so many people to die because we don't know how many more he murdered just out of sheer rage or how many women he assaulted but that guy if they had gotten him then when he was 16 he would have been off the streets
0: now to be fair uh, this is the only murder i think anybody had ever pinned on him and he's ever been involved in he was clearly escalating yes and who knows where they'd have gone
1: exactly at a certain point no but it could have it could have been stopped but
0: what's so so yes. disturbing is that detective inviter who's just uh, like i never had any bad interactions He's just him.
1: a nice boy who made some bad decisions fuck you
0: well <laughs> and so <laughs> here's Here's, here's what I did think in that moment, though, is that, for, for, especially for the Vider detective,
2: mm-hmm.
0: that's a dude who does seem like he's trying to do his job. And the biggest problem is, is he doesn't recognize what that means. These guys have I mean, never been introduced. I mean, profiling he, had just become kind of commonplace. That
1: guy is looking at it as just like, you know, if I pin this on this boy, his whole future's gone.
0: Which is what the entire town thought. He's
1: his whole he's forgetting that his whole point is he's supposed to be objective. I'm not supposed to look you're not supposed to look at the person so much as the facts. What's in front of me? Okay. If he had looked at just those facts, it would have been like, This kid needs to be detained.
0: Except here's your problem. Yeah. All these people are elected officials. I know. And that's that's where it always comes down. This is why
1: elections have consequences, people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What that eventually comes down to is that I think this guy was doing right by his community, was investigating the case that he thought he needed to investigate, but you're dealing with a town that doesn't understand what they've got in their midst. He... Not to mention, fighter's the home of the fucking Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> and that's its own disturbing shit. Yeah, I, I remember that from link. the beginning of the movie. Ugh, ugh.
1: He thought he was doing the right thing.
0: He's he's the most tragic character it's, of the detectives because all the Dallas detectives are like, okay, motherfucker, to, okay. you sh- you deserve to be in jail. He didn't outright
1: wrong, but by not knowing that what he was doing was in fact wrong, he hurt people.
0: Well, and he even says it. He's like, I've seen the consequences of it, but he's never been nothing but nice. And you're just like, oh, you're missing
1: the point, dude. You, you were fooled it. by a criminal. Like you got you got played. Yeah,
0: that hurts. It's a tough movie to watch. It's a tough movie to stomach in a lot of It wasn't
1: of ways. a tough movie to watch.
0: Well, no. It's a very entertaining movie to watch. There
1: have been th- we've, we've watched... I've watched some documentaries that are way more painful. Right. Uh, but no, this is good.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the production and the style. And okay. we can get into some of your thoughts about that.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, this was actually originally meant as a film on Dr. James Grigson, the psychiatrist.
1: Oh, I could see that. Uh, the psychiatrist that Dr... Uh, what killer yeah dr. aka death.
0: dr death dr death
1: okay morgan spurlock who i know people hate he's he's sh- he's a schlocky documentarian
0: his shtick is overplayed
1: it, it is um i still like Super Size me but that's a different conversation um, that's fine he quoted somebody and i can't remember who he's quoting but they said when you go to make a documentary when you're all of a sudden done if you t- if you end up making the exact film you set up to f- to film you didn't listen to you didn't learn anything. I like hearing that Errol Morris went to go do something about Doctor Death and stumbled upon this case. I was like, oh, I got to do this. This is interesting. Well, Let, right. Let's investigate this.
0: Um, and Morris had been a private detective. Oh, okay. Before he started a lot of this stuff, um, Morris, I could go on and on hmm. about his entire career because it's bizarre and fascinating and wonderful. He had done two documentaries up to this point, Mm -hmm. which were really about just like some small town weirdness. But you can kind of see that creep into this movie Yeah, where this is the first movie where he took on a really weighty subject. And from then on, he began that road of really investigating, as he puts it, truth. His whole idea of his movies is he wants to find the kernel of essential truth. Yes. Whether or not that means that he's telling it in a realistic way, whether or not his subjects are willing to tell him what's real, mm-hmm. he wants to understand the full picture, even if it's rough around the edges.
1: Yeah, no, no, I get that. That's, well, that's a perfect little kernel for what this movie did. And um, um, most of all the documentaries I've watched, right
0: and and Morris becomes this hugely influential figure no I
1: I fully recognize that because
0: of that now. the one I've always wanted to watch is 2004's the Fog of War in which he interviews former defense secretary Robert McNamara about the Vietnam War oh, okay. and McNamara breaks down exactly why we lost because McNamara said because McNamara lays out all of the failures that we had as a nation because of it and Morris just intercuts this one interview with footage of the war. Mm-hmm. That's it. All of his movies begin to take this this one story mm-hmm. and then start to attack it from a bunch of different angles until you feel like you've got a crystal picture. And this movie, most Probably people a first credit attempt at, at that, but a lot of people credit this movie for exonerating Randall Adams. It
1: definitely had handed it.
0: If you ever wanted an argument for why public broadcasting and uh, national arts programs are good, mm-hmm. this movie was significantly funded by this corporation for public broadcasting, the National Woo-hoo. Endowment for the Arts, Chubb Insurance, all the normal artsy people were invested in this mm-hmm. film. This whole style of interviewing is mm-hmm. brand new. If you'll notice, most documentaries, how does the interview happen?
1: Oh, like interviewers a, off like a to the this- line.
0: Well, but interviewers off to the side, mm-hmm. the person's looking at them, and you've always got the camera at the angle.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How is everybody interviewed in this movie? Directly face on. Yeah. This became a hallmark, and he did it in his early movies too. Mm-hmm. This becomes a hallmark of his work to the point where he created a system of filming, which he, which his wife called the interrotron <laughs> But the way it works is the interviewer is behind a curtain. Mm-hmm. And his face, he is on camera oh, okay. on a television screen mounted directly on top of the camera. That way, the interviewee at looks directly in the cam- at the person the, yeah. and thus he gets the shot of looking right at the camera.
1: They accomplish that on shows like The Office, where it's when they're doing those talking head interviews where the camera is just behind the director. Right. And so they're, the director is feeding the lines. And, and
0: that's yeah. all Errol Morris. Yeah, he came yeah, up that's... with that technique. And huh. it's that truth thing.
2: No. You feel Let's so much more
0: connected mm-hmm. when you have the direct eye contact with each of those characters. Your I mean, I think your emotional state when you watch mm-hmm. a dateline, you don't get as emotionally invested in it because everybody kind of seems off to the side. But no, you get emotionally
1: Polly and John Stossel, and I'm really dating myself. <laughs> I'm so old. But you get
0: emotionally <laughs> invested with these. True. Because it's not about the interviewer; it's about the subject. these subjects.
1: Hmm, interesting. Um, I would be thinking about that with all of our, our movies now. I'm glad this is our first one.
0: I know it's such good a ch- choice.
1: We're so smart. It's a good
0: baseline documentary <laughs> no, for is. everything. The tape interview was not hmm. planned. His camera was not working that day, so okay. that's why we got the the idea of the tape and him to just film that at different film angles. Film the tape
1: and zoom in and zoom out. no. That works.
0: And just that, uh, it's so haunting. In he. He won't admit it. No. But he will
1: clue in. He's, he's, he all but said he didn't do it. And I'm the only person who could tell you that for certain. Uh, I mean, he, he, and, And you know what's it's and and it's spoken like a true psychopath. It's like I'm just gonna dangle you with it.
0: Well, sort of, but then there's also this weird empathy you have for him too, because he doesn't seem like your normal psychopath. There's
1: a part of him that feels bad.
0: He has remorse, and I almost wonder if it's more a rage issue for him. I think I think it's just he he clearly feels remorse for these things. Mm -hmm. He just doesn't know how to control his rage and he he's got nothing there. This did win Significant Awards, New York Films Critics Circle, all this stuff. It was not nominated for an Oscar. Because Errol Morris was adamant that this movie not be billed as a documentary. Hmm. He marketed it as a nonfiction film. He specifically wanted to treat it as something other than a documentary.
1: But that's it's not something other than a documentary.
0: At the time, it was. Um,
1: uh, it's a new type of documentary, but it is a documentary.
0: I don't know. He He's a weird guy. He
1: he he's, let those reenactments get in sway what he was doing.
0: I don't know. He he had his own ideas about Whatever, that. But It's still great. But <laughs> what is interesting is that out of this, Errol Morris was a recipient in 1989 of a MacArthur Genius Grant.
1: Fuck yeah.
0: And this movie clearly earned oh, some of yes. that. That's awesome. So... How many stars do you give this thing?
1: I don't, that's the hard, it's the hard thing to try to rate. Maybe we shouldn't do star ratings for this. Oh, we will. I feel like it kind of needs to be more on a just, would you recommend, would you not recommend?
0: There are no past fails on this show.
1: <laughs> okay, if we're gonna, if we're gonna, I'm, I'm gonna do a 3.5. Okay. I'm gonna
0: do a 3.5. I'm gonna go with a 4. Okay. The only reason I push it a little higher is the influence that it has on the other documentaries. It's not perfect, mm-hmm. but it so compels me.
1: Okay, I'm going. I'm keeping my 3.5 with the caveat that I mean, I literally just finished watching it, and as it sits with me longer, I'm I may decide that it's worth more. So when we're done with our documentary series, because we're doing about eight films, yeah. Uh, I'm allowed to change. I'm allowed to adjust my ratings for documentaries. That's what I've decided.
0: All right, fine, whatever. But, well,
1: because, because of how they can sit with you.
0: Yeah, and this one sits with
1: you. So, A
0: long time. Okay,
1: so documentaries are the only films that we're allowed to change our ratings.
0: Okay, so we've rated this one. What's our next film?
1: Uh, next week, we're going to do 2012's The Imposter.
0: God, I've wanted to see this for so long. I'm pretty sure I've actually heard this whole story now somewhere else.
1: I believe, I'm going to have to look this part up before we get to it, but I believe the people who made this film were on Fresh Air.
0: Possibly, but I think I heard, I think I heard like a documentary style version of this story on like Criminal or one of these other podcasts out there, but I I've wanted to see this movie just based on how it was reenacted and the style of the movie. And I don't have all the details, so...
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Yeah, no, I like this one. This one I thought about for a while after I watched it.
0: Well, all right. We're, We're trading crime for crime.
1: In Texas. Ooh.
0: So, we saw a crap ton of movies... While we were on hiatus.
1: Yes, we did. Uh, We started with Tag.
0: A small group of former classmates organized an elaborate annual game of Tag that requires some to travel all over the country.
1: Okay, so content and trigger warnings regarding miscarriage. So fast forward a couple minutes if you don't want to hear about it. And this movie was really enjoyable it was a good popcorn movie until they made a joke about miscarriage that was very tasteless and then they leaned into it over and over again and while it was happening it was being t- said by a bunch of men so i was like okay okay like uh, maybe i can leave this alone leave this alone oh no and then they had two two of the female leads who the only female leads, lean into it more and make some other disparaging remarks regarding miscarriage. And I'm like, oh, fuck y'all. Because that's just not cool.
0: I mean, for me, uh-huh. the first two thirds of this movie are fine. Mm-hmm. And kind of forgettable. Yeah. But in a, I can watch this on cable type way. Yeah. It's that last third that and last that third. last act that for me even gets to the point of, man, fuck this movie.
1: Well, once they did that... The, our entire our, we went to a theater that was mostly full. It was almost a sold out showing, and after that, nobody was laughing anymore. Exactly, there were very few chuckles, and then they they just set you up to be like, everything's a lie, everything's a lie, and the emotional payoff that they're trying to go for later no longer works because they ruined it. This movie did not have enough screenings with viewer feedback.
0: It just didn't have the moral fortitude to pull off the joke it was trying to pull off at the end.
1: And it was just so unnecessary. So, yeah, that ruined the movie.
0: Even without the trigger warning, I can't in good conscience recommend the movie. Like, I just don't think it's good.
1: I would say it's not worth the money, but it's certainly enjoyable to have on in the background. Uh, Before we got to that problem, now I'm just like, yeah, this movie's stupid.
0: Though maybe if we watched it later and knew that was coming we might be able to just brace for it and get past it.
1: I mean, I...
0: I don't know. It's bad. It's bad.
1: I just, like, I know for so many people that that is really, really triggering.
0: Absolutely.
1: And that's what made me so disappointed. I was like, yeah, I know there's people who walked into that theater... Or, and are going to just be like, oh, just, let's just see this stupid, silly movie. And then it's going to be this really tasteless joke that they then keep going after. Yeah, and there's going to be somebody leaving in tears, and that just makes me sad. Okay, then we saw...
0: The Incredibles 2. Ah. Bob Parr, Mr. Incredible, is left to care for the kids while Helen, Elastigirl, is out saving the world. They showed right before the movie started. This little thank you teaser. Which they do with a lot of movies now. It's yeah. a thank you for coming to the movie theater type yeah, thing. Yeah,
1: like, thank you for waiting 14 years for this movie. That,
0: that was what was most interesting. It's yeah. like, thank you for waiting so long for this movie. Uh-huh. I feel like they pulled it off. I think they did a really good job.
1: It's It's okay.
0: You don't like The Incredibles.
1: Okay. In terms of Pixar films, The Incredibles is down towards the bottom for me.
0: Which is interesting because there are so many people who hold this up as their paragon. Story-wise, I've got to admit, it is one of their strongest outings. And if you really think about that movie, I haven't watched it enough to go in, Mm -hmm. but I realize it's one of their most mature stories to that point for sure.
1: This, This one is particularly...
0: Bradbird's coming back with a vengeance I, and is pulling all the Bradbird things back out of this okay, thing again.
1: So I liked the villain because I think that was some re- like in the Pixar vein, it was some good social commentary that were too reliant on screens. We're focusing too much on screens. Go play outside. Go play with your friends. Stop staring at a screen. That's a deep, fine message.
0: I would dispute that a little bit.
1: I mean, it's it's definitely a part of what is going on with that. It is, and I kind of hated that the biggest problem for the Incredibles as a fan, the Parr family, was who's gonna watch Jack Jack, which is a legitimate thing. Like that is that is parents <laughs> one of their biggest concerns. Who's gonna watch my kids so I can go to work? But I hated that the first place they go to is dad doesn't know anything and he's a buffoon. And I feel like if it was just that in regards to Jack-Jack, because Jack-Jack is a very special baby, (laughs) then it could have been, okay, we're doing the typical Mr. Mom doesn't know how to handle this. But he was that way with Dash and Violet. And I'm like, this is obnoxious.
0: I, I can understand that, I guess.
1: I did love every single thing with Jack-Jack.
0: Well, yeah.
1: Because it's hilarious.
0: Especially how they tied it Edna.
1: Oh, Edna Moe is great. And Jack-Jack is just hilarious. And, of course, he's just this demon-spawn baby and it reminds us of our
0: What I actually didn't like about Bob Parr wasn't the buffoonery at home. Because, I mean, whatever. I can get over that. It was the outright awful jealousy. Like... I understand that there's a little bit of rivalry for Mm -hmm. a spouse, but it's never that overt. Like, right out in front of her, he cannot control saying that he doesn't think she should be able to have this chance. And it's Uh, a bit much.
1: Well, I did like that they said that you cost too much money. But that's also interesting, because, you know... Women are paid less than men. (laughs) Yeah. So there's that whole thing, and like, oh, but yeah, she's more efficient than you. Uh, She's better at this job. She's also better at the job at home. So there's a lot of that going on, and I felt, I just didn't love, I, I didn't love it. That's fine. I just, I don't care about the Incredibles. You
0: don't care about Brad Bird either.
1: No, I'm fine with Brad Bird. I don't. I mean, he did the Toy Stories too, so I, like, I'm fine with Brad Bird. I just don't care about the Incredibles as characters. Okay, so then we had a twofer. We'll start with, we saw Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom.
0: When the island's dormant volcano begins roaring to life, Owen and Claire mount a campaign to rescue the remaining dinosaurs from this extinction-level event. That is bullshit. That is not what this movie's about.
1: No. This movie's stupid.
0: It's not good.
1: Okay, Jurassic World was fine.
0: It was a super fun way to reboot the franchise. It really it, was. It
1: was. And that makes, that's fine. And this story should have been, we should, we're should. we going to try and save some of the species so that we can maybe reopen the park.
0: I think my problem was that the story itself and the bones of it were very, very good. the The idea that they had
2: mm-hmm.
0: was smart. Yeah. And then they, it's like they took that story they had in mind, which is, you know shadowy group wants to help rescue the dinosaurs and they're all you know invested in trying to save these species that they've created and now we have dinosaurs do we mm-hmm. want to let them die yeah and so that's a cool that's a cool thing to jump into but it's like they took that and then tried to just stretch that premise as far as they could go without breaking and in fact they did break it and never realized they did
1: no it's not very good I like the dinosaur on dinosaur fighting. That was actually pretty cool. Oh, it's
0: badass. They do a great job with the actual dinosaurs. It's the stories of the characters in between.
1: Yeah, you just don't care. And
0: nobody has been able to match what Spielberg did with those first two movies. No. You're left just reminding yourself that maybe you can leave a story alone and and it just be fine the way it is.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Not everything needs to be redone over and over and over again. Nope. And that gets us to the final movie, and probably the most pertinent to our current film series that we're doing, We saw, Won't You Be My Neighbor?
0: An exploration of the life, lessons, and legacy of iconic children's television host, Fred Rogers.
1: Oh, <gasps> it's just, he's exactly, he's Mr. Rogers.
0: Bring the tissues. Yeah. For fuck's sake. Like, You're gonna need him.
1: Like, for most of it, it was like some reasonable, like, just some tears. Oh, that's so sweet. And then they talked about him coming back to do special messages for nine eleven, And then I became a blubbering idiot.
0: <laughs> to me, it, it's gonna hit people in different yes, ways. different
1: little spots are gonna get you.
0: What truly got to me was the understanding of who Daniel Striped Tiger was as a character, mm-hmm. and his entire childhood, and the anxieties he dealt with throughout his career, yeah. that hit just so hard for me <laughs> as a person creating things.
1: Well, for me, when I think of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, uh, uh, yeah, I can't. I can't talk about it without starting to cry. And just how sweet that show still is. And in the movie, they're singing these songs that we still sing to our kids.
0: Yeah. They, they still exist. Everything's still the same from that. The man made a lasting <gasps> legacy. And the way he expresses that early on is both emotional, but also really fascinating, too. Oh. Like, you, yes. you won't cry the entire time. In fact, you're going to laugh out loud a lot. And you're also just going to be fascinated and captivated especially the early childhood stuff that they talk about and, how, and what he studied and how he came to this understanding of what he wanted to do with television.
1: And also, you know, I think a lot of people know he was a Presbyterian minister. He was ordained. But that this was his mission. This was his entire was ministry. His ministry. And it's just fascinating. And they have interviews with the gentleman who runs the Fred Rogers Center and also like Yo-Yo Ma. And just <laughs> just like uh
0: the peop the the most fascinating people who had very interesting moments and ties to him, yeah, people from behind the scenes, people from his family, just everybody they 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 pull such an interesting group, yeah, francois Clemens gets a standout moment, which his story he you can make a documentary about him by himself,
1: that would be very interesting because he's
0: just so interesting and unique but he he literally just out of necessity and who was around him created this entire world and in seeing it you know you can roll your eyes a little bit at some of it now not in a bad way but just in a god this is poorly produced type way like if you're if you're watching it for its its production value you will start to go oh
2: man
1: (laughs) but then when you go like when, when it was made, this was insane for a kid.
0: And when you dig through the layers and seeing and hearing all of that, everything makes so much more sense.
1: And there's no one from our generation who did not watch Mr. Rogers.
0: I mean, for me, I was I was always a sick kid. I, I was always up crying every night and uh, pain all the time. The only thing that would get me to stop crying was Mr. Rogers. The only thing. And to this day, anytime he's on, just relax. Everything in my body just goes, okay, I'm safe. I'm good. Everything's okay. And there are kids for 30 years who have that same feeling. They You can just turn it on and be fine. And now our kids have that same thing too. And kids throughout the rest of time will have it. And it's just this little island of peace and calm that you can have. And this documentary helps explain why and how that came to be.
1: It was it was interesting. We were actually sitting next to a couple, and at the end of the movie, they were talking, and they were a little older, and the gentleman said, I never watched this show. And the wife was like, well, yeah. Probably, I mean, we were, we were adults then. And then he goes, yeah, but I don't think... The, I don't remember seeing it when the kids were little. And I just thought that was so interesting to hear somebody who... Grew up as a parent with Mister Rogers. Yeah, Uh, yeah, it's interesting. That was so shocking to me.
0: But it's what what I think is
1: everyone who was around our age was crying.
0: Oh, of course, (laughs) they were crying. And I and I almost wonder, you know, they they have this one moment where they're showing it's it's like an advertisement or something, or Mm -hmm. just but it's a kid playing in a playroom by himself because you know either mom and dad are still out working. Or they're in the other room, and he's in the playroom. Mm-hmm. And then Mr. Rogers comes on, and he stops playing, and sits down and starts watching. That's the experience you have with Mr. Rogers as a kid. Everything go- fades away, mm-hmm. you watch, and he's talking to you directly. I mean, he says it, I was always talking to one person. It mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, I didn't have exactly who in mind, but yeah. I knew it was just I one was person. And that's how you feel when you watch it. You <sighs> You must go see it. You will, if if you are human and grew up in somewhere between the 70s and 90s, mm-hmm. you will cry. So be prepared. The only reason I didn't cry as much as I did was because I really needed to get to the bathroom. <laughs> but otherwise, I'd have been blubbering as well. It's, it's beautiful and it's beautifully made. Yeah. I think that's what's so wonderful about it.
1: Yeah, and... I one of my favorite tweets that I saw about it was that I went to this movie and I just kept waiting and waiting for them to just tell me the bad thing. What was the one horrible thing about this man? Like maybe he was horrible to his wife or his children, and they just said, "It never comes." He was that guy. I he I, the man you saw on television was who he was
0: exactly. And what I really really love is that they they do humanize him. Mm-hmm. They talk about his faults. They talk about his insecurities and the and his struggles, and still he's like that, that guy.
1: I also love that they do explain how he would express some of his less than TV Mister Rogers uh, sentiments. Which go watch the movie. I'm not going to spoil it because it is too hilarious. I'm really glad we got to see this film. While we're doing our documentary series, because this one will always be one that we point to as being a wonderful documentary, particularly when it's one where it focuses on a particular person. Yes. Yeah. So um, I'm really glad this came out for us during this series.
0: I think we covered it. (sighs) Yeah. Uh... That one's an odyssey in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So two thumbs way down on a couple of movies one eh, maybe Meh. that's a kids movie yeah. and then one that you better get your butt in and go see it I mean, five, rent five
1: it. stars five stars from Diana which never happens <laughs> i'm so fucking stingy with my stars um but that that will be one of the top movies we saw this year this year for me oh of course it'll be in my top
0: 5 it's just it's wonderful and exactly what you want it and need it to be
1: um if you if you've been holding back some tears about just life things um and you need some catharsis, go watch this movie. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
0: And I promise, you will enjoy it and you won't just cry the whole way through.
1: Yeah, it's it's a good cry. It's a good cry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Alright, guys.
1: Until next time. Bye.